Now, Romans 8. Now, as we uh, work through Romans 8, it's been a great encouragement to me that you are really engaging with what Paul is saying. And the reason I know that is that I've had no end of questions, comments, emails, and conversations. And just let me encourage you that that really encourages me to keep them coming. It's a great encouragement to me, not because you're interested in my sermons or talks, but because you are interested in the gospel and its impact on your life. What I want to do this morning, partly because it's half term and students are away, and um, I want to get to verses 12 and 13 of Romans 8 and, and kind of land the plane there today, speak about the practical stuff about walking according to the Spirit. But before that, I want to answer some of the questions on the basis that uh, if somebody has asked me one of these questions, almost certainly lots of other people have these questions. Okay? So, four questions I want to answer amongst the many, and uh, they are the four that I think I can answer. The other ones I'm working on. First, someone asked me, it's a great question, how can I deal with guilt? for something that has happened in my past. And the person who asked me that question will not, I am certain, be alone. And the person is a Christian who asked me that question, who knows they are fully forgiven, who knows that the penalty for sin is gone and that there is no longer any condemnation. They know that, they believe it with all their heart and mind, and yet they live daily with guilt from the past. Now, what is the answer to how can I deal with guilt? Well, part of the answer is, I think, to continually be reassured from God's Word that all your sin is forgiven, past, present, and future, that we're not guilty and there really is no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1. Romans 8 verse 1 means that the declaration of not guilty is ours, and thereby logically we should not, need not, have guilt. Romans 8 1 is not the kind of verse that you come to every five or six years in the Christian life. It's the kind of verse that you need to come to all of the time. Not guilty. And being reminded of that again and again is a big part of the answer to dealing with guilt. We feel guilty. We feel we should be guilty. The devil whispers to us that we are guilty, but God says, and the proof that it's true is what Christ achieved on the cross as he dealt with sin and the guilt of our sin is that we are not guilty. But alongside that answer to the question, how could I deal with guilt, I'd say this, is that we need to come to terms with the fact that in this life, until we're dead, we will live, many of us, with the consequences of our sinful actions in the past. We cannot wind back the clock. There are consequences of our sin that we may have to live with and others live with around us. And we need to accept that. And maybe talk about it. But that is very different 
living with the consequences from guilt. Guilt leads us to despair and doubt that we really are forgiven. Living with the consequences of our actions may lead us to regret, to contrition, yes, to humility, and to a desire to live and do differently now, but not to doubt that we have been declared not guilty before God. But it is a struggle. But there is a way through it. Second question. And it's a question about uh, terminology. Uh, John Piper, when he preaches on Romans 8, if you're going to listen to anyone on Romans 8, don't listen to me, listen to him. To be fair, he's at Romans for six years. So you might have a lot of downloads on your iPod or whatever. He, occasionally when he's preaching, says, some of you out there think that I'm nitpicking. None of you think that I'm nitpicking. You haven't asked me that question. But terminology and understanding in Romans 8 really matters. So here's this question from somebody. What does Paul mean by the flesh and the mind? Talks a lot about walking according to the flesh. Or setting your minds on something. What does he mean? Well, have a look at your hands. Okay? He doesn't mean skin or sinews or muscles by flesh. He doesn't mean that. And by mind, he doesn't mean our brains or the thinking part of us. <laughs> now, I explained that answer to the person last week. And then they said, well, why did he use these, language, these words? Well, because, remember, we are in translation and he used these words 2,000 years ago, and he means something different in the context of Romans. So what does he mean? Well, read with me the second half of verse 4 and verse 5 in Romans 8. Paul is talking about Christians. Christians are people who, verse 4b, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul is talking about two different types of people. Christians, on the one hand, and on the other hand, people who are not Christians. So, on the one hand, Christians are those who walk according to the Spirit and set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That is Paul's description of the Christian. The Christian is somebody in whom the Holy Spirit lives and whose inner being, whose fundamental orientation in life and whose eternal destiny, that's what Paul means by setting one's mind on something, the fundamental orientation we have is to live dependently on God under his authority and to walk in accordance with the Spirit. And on the other hand, those who walk according to the flesh and set their minds on the things of flesh, that is what Paul uses to define somebody who is not a Christian. Somebody whose inner being, whose fundamental orientation, which is what Paul means, remember, by the mind, is to live independently of God, now, 
and if they do not come to Christ for eternity. The difference, then, is one of fundamental orientation. Two entirely different people, the Christian and the person who is not a Christian. Now, as you sit here this morning, you are one or the other. That's Paul's point. You're one or the other. You either walk according to the flesh, and you set your minds on the things of the flesh. Your fundamental orientation is to live apart from God in rebellion against Him. You're not a Christian, or you walk in the Spirit, and you set your minds on the things of the Spirit. Your fundamental orientation is with God and for God and forever. You're one or the other. Now, you may be thinking, will I still go on sinning? That's a different thing. Fundamentally, you're A or B. You're not A plus B or C. There's no such thing as anything other than A or B. That's Paul's point. Now, you might be saying, and you're not, because you're gentle. This is nitpicking. Let me come at it this way. There is no such thing as somebody who is a Hibs fan and a Hearts fan. Now, one of you is going to come and tell me afterwards, you are. You're not. There's no such thing as a Rangers fan and a Celtic fan. And that's an important distinction to be clear on when you go to the stadium. Otherwise, you might end up in the wrong place and there may be eternal consequences. <laughs> it's very important. It cannot be more important when you sit here this morning that you know whether, A, you are walking according to the Spirit with your mind set on the Spirit, or B, you are walking according to the flesh with your mind set on the flesh. Somebody asked me a supplementary question after service one. Can't I be both? No. Paul said, you can't be both. That's the, what his argument is saying. So that person who spoke to me is almost certainly walking not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. Third question, and this is a great question. How do I know, somebody wrote to me this week, that the Holy Spirit is living in me? How do I know that the Holy Spirit is really indwelling me? How do I know? What is the evidence that I should be looking for? Now, that is a very good question because... After all, Paul has said, verse 9b of Romans 8, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You don't belong to Jesus. You're not a Christian unless the Holy Spirit is living in you. So I need to know that the Holy Spirit is living in me. How do I know? That is a very important question. Let me give you some Romans answers to that question. There are others, but these are what Paul says in Romans. Firstly, there is the deep assurance that God is our Father and that we are His children. So, we have sung some great gospel songs. How do you sing? 
Do you sing with a sense of deep assurance when peace like a river attends all my way and sorrows like sea billows roll? Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say because the Spirit lives within me, it is well, it is well with my soul. You sing that with deep assurance that it's true or not as you gaze in your mind's eye on your death even as we sang. Or, in the song we sang just a moment ago, when the age of death is over and this world has been reborn, I'll be there beside my Savior. This is our great and rich reward. That's not a pop song, is it? You sing that with the deep assurance that it's true for you. Well, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And uh, Paul addresses that in Romans by speaking about the deep assurance that God is our Father and we are His children. Andy Robertson will preach on that next Sunday morning. The Spirit of God has given us a spirit of sonship and adoption such that we call God Father. One of the acid tests for me, um, and it's a kind of it's not a rule of thumb that I have as a, as a minister, but, but I'm really confident as far as I can be in somebody's conversion that they are a Christian if they are comfortable using the word Jesus or Father, which is different from Christ Jesus or Christ the Lord. It's intimate. It's familial. They're family words. Jesus. Father, that's one uh, evidence of the Holy Spirit living within you, that you have that deep assurance. But you can distrust that. There are lots of people in churches who say these things, but don't really have them or own them or believe them. The other evidence that the Holy Spirit is living in you is that my life is changing. In our families, we are affected by the people we live with. In our family, I used to always be early. Now, I am rarely ever early because I am affected by the person I am married with who's always late. Don't you dare tell her that. You know, I stand in street corners now and I'm quite relaxed about it. It's just how it is. Of course, I'm affected by her in wonderful ways. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, in other words, and the Holy Spirit is not like petrol or fuel or power, He gives us power. The Holy Spirit is a person. If a person is living in you, not just with you, but in you, then it will affect you. And if God is living in you by the Holy Spirit, how can you not be changed by that? Imagine if uh, Rory McElroy was living inside of you and you were a kind of 18 handicapped golfer, and you turned up to the golf range, and all of a sudden, with Rory McIlroy living inside you, whew, straight as a die, 330 yards. So how come, if God is living in you by the Holy Spirit, God, the person of God, the real God, not half a God, the real God living in you by the person of the Holy Spirit, how could you not be changed? Answer, if you are not changing the Holy Spirit is not living in you. And what is the change? It's negative. 
you put to death stuff, and we'll come to that later on, like uh, impurity, idolatry, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalry, all that stuff. It's not that you eradicate it, but there's a progress in your life. And there's positive stuff. If God is living in you, then the, the blossoming or the fruitfulness of God living in you. Remember, he is the vine, you are the branches. The Spirit is in you. What is happening in your life? Fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace. If that is there, then the Holy Spirit is in you. How do you know the Holy Spirit is living in you? There's the question. Answer, the deep assurance that God is our Father, that Jesus is my brother, and the fact that my life is changing. Now, let me just footnote that. We are fitful as Christians. Sometimes we really struggle with assurance. Sometimes the battle with sin is so fierce that we are not making progress. Let me just have a footnote to the footnote and encourage you that if you think that the battle with sin is something that you are increasingly struggling with as you grow in the Christian life, what is probably happening is that the Holy Spirit has enlivened your conscience. And what was indifferent to you is no longer indifferent to you. And often it feels like an ever-increasing battle. Do you feel that? The Holy Spirit lives in you. Now, I'm conscious that in saying all of this, that it might come for someone as a shock. You thought you were a Christian, but now you are not so sure. Let me encourage you, if you do feel that, to talk to me or somebody. You need to do that. You need to do that, that... Others might reassure you as we study God's Word together or lead you to how you might be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Last question. They're great questions, aren't they? Keep them coming. Just heartens me no end that you're wrestling, wrestling to be sure where you're going to spend eternity. Last question, and it's a great one. Let me just quote from the person. This was last Sunday morning. You said, they said. And I did say it. You said that when Christ died, the Christian through faith died to sin. So how come I keep on sinning? Isn't that a great question? Now, Paul does use that language of dying to sin, but he's a little more subtle than I was. Let me read you a verse from Galatians. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a helpful way of, of seeing the sins that I still commit, the temptation that I still struggle with, has been mortally wounded. It's been nailed to the cross. And it will die when my body dies finally. So how come I still sin? Because we will drag to our deaths our sinful old self. But, answer to the question, remember, these sins that drag you down have been mortally wounded, have been crucified when Christ died. Now, these are some of the questions, at least that I could make an attempt to answer, and I hope they have helped. Now, for the rest of our time, and it will not go over our normal time. Um, walking according to the Spirit, part two. Part one was last week. Part two is this week, the practical stuff. 
Let me read verses 3 to 13. And hopefully, some of these answers will have helped clear up some of the complexities. Verse uh, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now let's pray briefly. Our Father, we pray that these answers will have clarified some complexities and confusions in our minds. And we pray that now you would show us how it is that we can walk day by day in the Spirit and put to death, kill sin and temptation that drags us down. Help us practically to see how. And to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, quickly on the sheet, you'll see the first heading there. In the service sheet, what happened when I became a Christian? Our focus will be on verses 12 to 13 the practical stuff about tomorrow as I live in the Spirit, or today. But let me very quickly just summarize Paul's logic. What happened when I or you became a Christian? Well, the Holy Spirit indwelt me. The Holy Spirit, God Himself, came to live in me. A person, not a force or a power. That does not mean to say that the Holy Spirit does not give us power because He does, but the Holy Spirit is a person. God Himself, no less, in the Spirit, in the person of the Spirit, living in you and in me. And the Holy Spirit that indwelt you when you became a Christian, not after, at the point you became a Christian, gave you all that Christ's death achieved. All that Jesus Christ achieved when he died on the cross and was raised to life is in you, is yours by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think of Christian faith as faith 
in some kind of external thing or event. And yes, the cross is external to us in the sense that Jesus died over 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. That is a long way away from us. And yet, all that he achieved that day for you in relation to your sin and the penalty for that sin and the power of that sin over your life, all that he achieved for you that day 2,000 years ago, you have in you now because the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you like, the Holy Spirit has plugged you right in to what Christ wrought or achieved on the cross. And what does the cross achieve for us? Or I could have said, what does the Holy Spirit give to us? The same thing. What does the cross achieve for us? What does the Holy Spirit put into us? One, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. You know that now, Romans 8 verse 1, that is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty is gone. So you sit here and you look forward to the next 10,000 times, 10,000 years, no condemnation, everlasting life. That's what it says. I've listened to so many sermons in Romans, as you can imagine. We preachers do work hard. And there's a, a sermon I listened to, and he's great, this guy. And he said, look, whatever else you do, every sermon on Romans 8, just always mention Romans 8 verse 1. Because if they send them away again, and they don't understand anything again, just send them away with Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation. So there you go. I've done it again. What did Jesus achieve when he died? What did the Holy Spirit put into you? That Christ's death has set you free from the penalty of sin for eternity. That's great. What else did it achieve for us? That we have been saved from the power, the dominion of sin in our lives. And that's uh, Paul's major focus here in the first half of chapter 8, that we've been saved from the power of sin. The indwelling spirit has taken, has captured, if you like, the control center of our lives. We no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, the control center, the bit that drives us fundamentally, ultimately, internally, and for eternity has been captured by the Holy Spirit. Now, after the sermon last week, uh, I, I ventured to do a review with Andy Buchan, who's not here, so I can tell you. And I said, Andy, give me some feedback on the sermon. He said, it was great. I said, Andy, I can see that look in your eye. He said, you needed to give them an illustration. Didn't give them an illustration. So here you go. Here's the illustration from last week. Okay? This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and liberates you from the power of sin. Think of it like this. Imagine a ship that is in enemy hands. And then the ship is invaded. And the bridge of the ship is captured. And the bridge is the control of the ship. Capture the bridge and victory is assured. Capture the bridge and victory is assured, but there is a lot of fighting still to do as all over the ship. There are pockets of resistance that are holding out. And he was right. I should have done that last week. Or think of it like this, the history of World War II, the Normandy landings were the significant turning point. That is the point when the war turned. That is when the Allies took control, but there was still a lot of fighting, a lot of mopping up that needed to be done before victory was finally declared. And these illustrations, and they're not uh, 
perfect. Help us to understand what happened when you became a Christian. The Holy Spirit invaded the ship of your life, and the Holy Spirit took control of the bridge. Your inner being, victory assured, a greater power, a greater sovereignty. The Holy Spirit is steering the ship, ultimately in the direction of an everlasting eternity in a new creation. And there is a lot of fighting with sin that still needs to be done There are pockets of resistance all over your life and mine, and we've got to fight, but we fight always remembering that the Holy Spirit has taken the bridge and is in control. And the final thing that the cross achieves for us is our future bodily resurrection when we will be saved from the presence of sin itself. So when we sang in that uh, new modern song that I love, when the age of death is over, and that means literally our physical death, and this world has been reborn, I'll be there living beside my Savior with a sinless body. Sin is gone. And sin will go completely at our death, and there will be no pockets of resistance left in the ship of my body, for I will have a resurrected body. Now, that's the continuum we are on. When Christ died on His cross 2,000 years ago, what He achieved for you and I sitting here now is saved from the penalty, saved from the power of sin. The Spirit has captured the bridge He's dealing with sin all over the ship of our bodies. One day saved, guaranteed from the very presence of sin. Christ did it 2,000 years ago. And you get it into you because the Holy Spirit indwells you. Now, with that in mind, let's turn in our last little bit of time to the practicalities of verses 12 and 13. With that logic in your mind, with what has happened in you, life in the Spirit, with your minds set on the things of the Spirit. So then, brothers, verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, Paul is writing here, to exhort us, or he's writing here, if you like, with a sense of obligation. He's also writing, though, descriptively, as it were, with a statement of fact. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, by definition, by necessity, the deeds of the body are being put to death. If they're not, the Holy Spirit is not in you. But he does write with a sense of obligation. We've got, to, we've got to allow the Holy Spirit, if you like, to do this in our lives. Now, let me show you how, and let me trace through the logic with you. Firstly, what are the deeds of the body? What does he mean? Or the deeds of the flesh? Temptation. I asked people in service one, has anyone experienced temptation over the past week? 
there was a complete non-response apart from one lady in the corner who smiled. So only one of them has. Has anyone experienced temptation today? Thank you, Ian. Has anyone experienced temptation when they've written or are actually writing a sermon on experiencing temptation? Andy and me, almost certainly. They are the deeds of the body. Now there, pockets of resistance. Or, Paul talks about the works of the flesh. Deeds of the body, works of the flesh, same thing. Galatians, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. I always find Paul's list quite depressing. Stuff that we know, isn't it? They're the deeds of the body. Why should we put them to death? Because we owe the deeds of the body and the flesh nothing. Why? Because we do not walk any longer fundamentally according to the flesh. The old I has been crucified and one day will be finally dead. We owe nothing to what will eventually be a dead body. We owe everything to our life in the spirit and the resurrection body that we will have in the future. We owe nothing to the deeds of the flesh. And also because we want to change. If you don't want to change, the Holy Spirit cannot be living within you. Now, there's your logic. What are the deeds of the body? Why should we put them to death? Now, in order to do that, we need to do something really important. We need to see temptation and sin in our life. We need to recognize it when it's there. We need to acknowledge it and not be indifferent to it, whatever age we are, youngies or oldies. We need to be alert to the crisis stuff when it comes. But you know what we need to be alert to as Christians? The low-grade stuff that we have learned to live with. We must not as Christians ever, ever learn to live comfortably with what is dead and dying and crucified in us because it is so dangerous. So see sin. Have a think about that low-grade volume one stuff that has gone on for 10 years that you've learned to live with as I think on it. Let me encourage you that one of the elders after the first service, said they were going home to think about that with a confidence now to kill it, whatever it is. Now, see sin and come to terms with the fact that it's there and then do this with it. See it through the eyes or the lens of the cross. Look at that sin or temptation that you experience through the eyes of the cross and what do you see in relation to that sin? You see two things. One, that it is a forgiven sin. You cannot... 
deal or fight or kill with an unforgiven sin. Because it masters you. You can fight or deal with a forgiven sin. The second thing you need to see about that sin or that temptation is that it is mortally wounded. It is crucified. So when temptation rears its ugly head in my life, I need to see that sin and temptation through the eyes of the cross. It is forgiven and mortally wounded. It is dying on the battlefield that is my body and my life because the Holy Spirit has invaded and controls the bridge. Then what do you do? Do you have a discussion about it? Do you ignore it? Do you contemplate it, grade it, judge it relative to others? This is what you do, Paul says. You kill it. John Piper preaches on this. You've got to listen to his three sermons on killing sin. You kill it. You kill it because it's mortally wounded. The sin in your life, the stuff that you still do and say has been mortally wounded, it's on the way out. You owe nothing to it, so kill it. And remember, God never says we are to do anything that we cannot do. Go and kill it, God says, and you'll find that you can't. Kill it, he says. How? A, from the inside out, not from the outside in. Don't go back to that old way of rules and regulations and religion to kill sin. Don't think that if you double your attendance on Sundays in church, which would be a very good thing, let me just footnote that, you will kill sin. You'll hear how you might. Don't default to rules to kill sin. You've got to kill it from the inside out. You've got to go to the bridge inside of you where the Holy Spirit lives and kill sin from the inside out. And B, you've got to kill sin in God's strength and not in our own. Why do Christians fail to make progress so often in the Christian life A lot of the time we fail because we try to make progress in our own strength. It is very liberating in evangelism to remember that God is sovereign in evangelism, not us. It is very liberating in the battle with sin in our lives as Christians to remember that God is sovereign and He is the power in us, not us. Now, as we conclude, very, very, very practically, how do you do this every day? Now, you'll see on the sheet, I've uh, taken this uh, little pattern from uh, John Piper. He uses this often in his preaching. He writes about it in his book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. How do you, in the crisis times, when temptation comes deal with it. How do you, in the habitual day-to-day of life, make progress? How do you kill that low-grade stuff 
That's gone on for years. Well, there's his logic. Now, if you see the the logic there, it's a little anacronym, A-P-T-A-T. What we must not do when we face temptation and sin is get to the second last bit first. So here's what we must not do. We mustn't just launch in and say, I'm going to deal with this in my own strength. I'm just going to stop it. I'm going to do it. We've got to get the first three bits in place in our minds. That's the logic of the gospel. What do we do? One, we acknowledge our inability to do any good on my own. We acknowledge that our salvation is entirely by God's grace. What do you understand by that phrase? Salvation is entirely by God's grace. Think of what Romans means by salvation. Saved from the penalty of sin. Salvation from the penalty of sin by God's grace. Saved salvation from the power of sin. Changed by God's grace. Saved salvation from the presence by God's grace. The whole of the Christian life. Justification, that's the penalty bit. Sanctification, that's the transformation bit. All by God's grace. All by the power of the cross. By the Holy Spirit that he has put into me. We cannot do it. He can do it. He will do it because he is in us. Acknowledge that. Tell God that. Talk to your father in a way that he knows and you know that all that you have, he provides for you. That's why Paul uses the word Daddy almost in verse 15. Intimate. A little child can do nothing for themselves. Acknowledge that and then pray for what? Pray for divine enablement. I could read you scripture after scripture after scripture where Paul prays that Christians that he writes to in churches will live in light of the grace of God in the gospel and not in their own strength or by works of the law or religion. So, Romans 5.21, for example, pray that grace might reign in my life through righteousness. Pray, ask, God Two, in the power of the Holy Spirit, because God lives in you, enable you to conquer sin and temptation. Ask God when you go home this afternoon to help you kill that low-grade stuff that has gone on unchecked and unnoticed for years. And trust in the promises of God's Word for help and for strength and for guidance. Every single one of the New Testament letters, and many of them exhort churches to seek after holiness in life, all of these letters begin with a reminder of the promises of God that we have in the gospel. God has given you everything you need in Christ to live a life of progress that kills sin. Read these promises and then 
act in obedience to God's word. And what a world of a difference now between such an act and what Paul calls works of the law. The acknowledgement that I am helpless, the prayer for divine enablement, the trust that Christ himself is my help and strength, these transform the act such that it is a fruit of the Spirit and not a work of the flesh. We often talk about the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? The sword of the Spirit is in the hands of the Spirit. What is the Spirit? Somewhere over there? Or inside of you? Where is the sword wielded? What are the promises of God worked out in the life of the Christian? Inside of you? From the inside out? And at the end of the day, when you go to bed and you've conquered some sin or whatever, don't, don't, don't think you did it. Thank God that he has done it. Thank God for whatever good in your life has been wrought. Thank him for conquering, at least in some measure, my selfishness and my pride. And give him all of the glory. Here's my final question that one of you asked me this week. What happens if I do this and I fail? To conquer the sin. Does that mean that God is not true to his word? It's a fair question, isn't it? Well, the answer to that question is that at the end of the day, when we come to the end of this life and we have a sinless body, God will prove to us and to himself for his glory that he has been true to his word. There will not be any pockets of resistance left in our lives. Now, I've uh, given us today from Romans how it is that we kill sin. Let me encourage us as a church family to do it. Just do it. Don't, don't, don't ever, 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 I plead with you, learn to live comfortably with flesh that has been crucified for eternity in your life. And secondly, encourage one another because the battle is fierce and the battle is hard. But fight that battle. Remember where the sword of the Spirit is, which is the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit. And the Spirit is inside you, not out there, inside you. Remember that the Holy Spirit has the bridge. Victory is assured and make progress. Very often I've stood up here and exhorted us as a church to make sure we have our daily quiet times. What a perilous, perilous way to live without sitting down every day and opening up the sword of the Spirit, and praying to God, moved by the Spirit, that He would help us kill the sin in our life. So if you've lost that habit, get, get out of your bed 20 minutes earlier tomorrow. It's not legalism. It's just common sense 
and liberation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these uh, great uh, chapters of Romans, this great chapter. Thank you for these uh, practical instructions. Help us, Lord, to get our heads around it. And maybe very practically, help us, Lord, many of us perhaps, to deal with that low-grade volume one, volume two stuff that we've learned to live with, which is wrong and that inhibits us, folds us back in a Christian life. We pray that the Holy Spirit might be able to get into a part of the deck of our lives where he has never gone, that we might, in your strength and from the inside out, kill sin. For your glory, and because that is the track that we are on for eternity. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.